but I am so keen to know from you because you've written a book you know, you are one of those amazing people that used the pandemic <laughs> in a very productive way and wrote not only any book, but a book that has been so well received. What have you learned about being a leader doing disruption? I think it's summarized in a single word, and that's called care. I think what leaders have recognized, and some of them are in the book that, that weren't as familiar with how important it was as it, as it quickly became for them, that they need to genuinely care. They need to genuinely care about whatever the organization's trying to achieve. So Raymond O'Flaherty, the CEO of the Metro Trains Melbourne, Metro Trains were smashed by the pandemic because people stopped using public transport and that's still a concern for a lot of people. And yet he had a workforce of 6,500 people that he serves that we're required to still go to work because we still have our health workers. We still had our police force, our, our ambulance uh, folk, et cetera, the hospital workers who needed to be able to get to and from work. But he had a workforce that needed to feel safe, as, as safe as possible in a risky job now because at that time, especially at the start of 2020, they, they didn't know what this virus really was. And so as much as Raymond was allowed to, according to the rules, he physically put himself out there to be with the staff where they were working at the very minimum saying, thank you for showing up. He cared enough to know that that was so important. I, I, I just need to, to thank you for showing up. Renata Bernardi, and this is the Job Hunting Podcast, where I interview experts and professionals and discuss issues that are important for job hunters and those who are working to advance their careers. So make sure that you subscribe and follow, and let's dive right in. My friend Gary Ryan wrote a book about leadership in times of disruption. To write his book, Gary interviewed several Australian leaders and observed as they led and tried their best to manage large organizations and small during lockdowns and several disruptions that have happened in the past couple of years. I interviewed Gary today to get his insight on what great leadership looks like in this new normal that we're living in 2022 and how job seekers and career enthusiasts, professionals, senior executives can get ready for their job search and finding the great place that they all want to work. I interviewed Gary for this episode to understand from him what great leadership looks like. So when you are looking for a job, you know how to identify the best organizations to fit you, the ones with better leadership, better culture, the ones that are looking forward, that are preparing themselves for the future. Gary is an expert in leadership. He's a consultant. He's an author and a great person all around. I hope you enjoy this chat where we start discussing his careers and his strengths and how he changed careers over time until he found his niche. We also discuss how to answer that terrible question that we all get in job interviews. What is your leadership style? And then we discuss issues as how to identify the best organization for you as you progress in your career and try to find the best fit for your skills and experience. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I sure did. It just flows when I'm talking to Gary every time. 
We have such great connection and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, Gary. Welcome, Renata. How are you? Welcome. I say welcome. Welcome you, Gary. <laughs> I'm looking forward to speaking with you today. Oh, great. So first of all, I like all my guests to tell us a little bit about their careers before we begin, because it's always great to hear a good career story. And I know that yours is pretty good. So tell us about your career so far, Gary. What took you from wherever you started to what you're doing now? Well, I thought I was going to be a secondary physical education teacher. So that was my first degree. Uh, I was involved in a head-on car accident when I was 19, which was pretty serious. And my girlfriend at the time actually suffered a brain injury. So that was a huge shake-up event for life. But I, I, she ended up okay. If you ever met her today, Renata, you wouldn't know that she'd been through what she went through. That delayed me completing that course. And in the end, I had the record for my cohort of taking seven and a half years to complete the four-year undergraduate degree. But it meant that when I graduated, there were no jobs for phys ed teachers. You literally mm. could not get one. So I went into the fitness industry, which happened to be related to the tertiary sector. And my first full-time job was actually uh, commercializing a fitness center for Monash University at its Caulfield campus and then contributed to the Peninsula campus, was involved with university sport as a result of that for a period of time recognize a bit of a glass ceiling with sport though. Australia's population isn't that as much as we've got professional sports here. There really weren't that many great paying jobs. So I decided I needed to go back to university and along that way started exploring getting out of sport and into more um, of the commercial side of the operations. That led me into a senior role in an organization that was partly owned by the university and the student unions, which involved retail, hospitality, sports. So we did everything from looking after the sports fields to running pubs, but it also included the career service and student development programs. And eventually evolved into some organisations such as the National Australia Bank, the Commonwealth Car Service, which is the service that drives around the Prime Minister and all the ministers and special guests to Australia, all the VIPs, etc. So it's a national agency. And they came and tapped us on the shoulder and asked us if we could help them with their culture because we'd been working on a servant leadership and values-based culture. And so I got tapped on the shoulder to be the one to become the head consultant, which is when I started to learn consulting skills. And as a result of all of that story, in 2007, I decided to start Organisations That Matter, which is my company, and that I wanted to work with organisations that recognised they had human beings in them and human beings matter. So I have been working ever since then for 15 years. We just turned 15 back in February, and I've been working with organisations that in some cases, Renata, recognise that they're not that good at treating people like human beings, but they want to. Uh, in other cases, and probably most of the cases, they've, they're actually quite good at it, but they want to be great. And there's a gap that they've got, and there's an, actual, there's an exponential difference between good and great. It's not a straight line. And that's fundamentally the gap that I, that I tend to work in with the organizations that I serve. There's my story. That's great, Gary. Before we go on and talk about leaders and the organizations that you've been working with, I want to ask you two questions about your career trajectory. First of all, a lot of Generation Zs, you know, the people that are graduating just before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and now uh, when things are going back to this new normal, mm -hmm. they're finding it hard to get jobs too. What was it during the time you graduated? 
graduated after seven and a half years of undergrad degree that made it hard for you to find a job as a school teacher? There just weren't. The, the government had changed some rules. They were actually importing PE teachers when I started my degree. But when I finished, because of uh, Jeff Kennett, it's well known, um, and some changes that had happened here in the state of Victoria, there were no teaching jobs. There literally were none. Now, I knew that about a year out from graduating eventually. So I looked around and, and I suppose this is one of, the, you know, you've got to face your reality. And my reality was this degree I'd been doing, which to be brutally honest, Renata, I actually worked out I didn't really want to be a teacher with people who didn't want to learn. I realized I actually have teaching skills, but I wanted to, and the seeds for my consulting work were actually planted way back then. I wanted to work with people who wanted to learn, Mm -hmm. right? So I actually discovered that finishing that degree, but I knew normal trajectory wasn't available. So I looked around and at the time I was working as a casual gym instructor, which is where I met my wife, in fact, who was also a casual gym instructor. So I love Monash for that. We have five beautiful children um, for Mm -hmm. Michelle and but working there, I could see that Monash had only taken over the Caulfield and Peninsula campuses four years earlier. And the quality and the difference between the facilities at the Clayton campus and the Caulfield and other campuses was a massive gap. So I guessed something had to happen. I see. Yeah. And so, so you, while- were looking at, you, you were looking at alternatives. You saw it coming. You were looking at alternatives. And I think I want to focus on this point for a little bit because even though my clientele is not that young. I know Mm -hmm. that there are young people in the audience for the Job Hunting Podcast, and I know Mm -hmm. that they are exiting the workforce more than others during the pandemic. And even now, they are, you know, confused about what their careers will look like post-pandemic. And I think that learning from somebody like you, who also had issues when they graduated, is is a good thing. Well, look, the similar thing actually happened when I formed my business. Some things had happened with the university, and there was a change in senior leadership in the university, and they they decided to restructure. And despite the positive performance of the organization, they made 460 of our staff staff redundant. I didn't actually, I wasn't, I didn't receive a forced redundancy, but there was a a voluntary one available to me. And so, and I knew that as well a year out. So in both instances, so I was obviously a lot older for the second time when that came around, that was 15 years later. Both instances, it's all about keeping your head up. And I know you use that language, keep your head up, look at what's going on. You know, you've spoken recently about the sunk costs fallacy. I I didn't know that language. I didn't know that theory then, but I, I guess deep down I understood it. And so in the first instance, you know, keeping my head up and looking around, I, I just, I could see something had to happen. And I was going to position myself that if it happened, I mean, the concept is i got a PE degree, right? So I'll use a sporting one. The easiest place in most sports to score a goal is from right in front of the goals. Is it guaranteed the ball will come to you? Is it guaranteed that if it does, you will still call kick, uh, kick a goal? But hey, it's the best place to be, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I actually approached my manager at the time at the gym and said, but I create a course that doesn't exist for members that they would actually have to pay for to, to have access to, but I won't charge you anything to run this course. Now, maybe that was not so smart, but I, I was doing this about my future and getting experience and runs on the board. That was going to be my payment. And I wanted to make it as easy as possible for my boss to say yes. There was no cost to the boss, right? And they yeah. said yes. I ended up running three cycles of this course over that 12-month period leading into when that job actually became available. And I've had it confirmed 
that that was the thing that got me across the line to the job compared to the other person who was shortlisted. That's great. I'm glad you mentioned the sunk cost fallacy because one thing that you mentioned before about doing the degree in education and realizing that you weren't really keen to teach any student, you you had there was a specific student. Now, you could have used the sunk cost fallacy to drop out and do something else, but I'm glad that you finished your degree. And you, and, and sometimes people get confused about the sunk cost decision making. Yeah. If you've invested a lot of time into something, you can always recycle that, right? I don't want people to regret spending time in, or investing money in projects that don't go ahead exactly as they planned, because I do believe in the power of recycling everything in your life and making every opportunity a project, an experience that you wear as a badge of honor and it moves you forward. So never regret things from your past, but make decisions that are good for your future. Yes. Look, I'll be dead straight. Five and a half years into that degree, I was at the the point of, do I quit? Is this a sunk cost for me? Again, it wasn't the language I was using, but you know, we can, that's really what I was asking. And my now wife, then my partner at the time, Michelle, you know, we discussed it together and she said, look, no, this is, it's, it's like a bus ticket. And, and it really was that undergraduate degree was like a bus ticket that it really didn't matter if I didn't end up being a teacher, but that ticket got me onto a bus that you couldn't get on without that ticket, without that, without a degree. And that bus could take you to all sorts of places, which Mm. absolutely in my story is true. I do not regret one iota pushing through in that case, even though I knew I wasn't most likely going to be a teacher. Mm. The system helped me by making it an impossibility in the short term, which I'm grateful for. And Gary, one more question about your career story that uh, caught my attention. It was Mm -hmm. that you decided that you wanted to do something commercial. What Mm -hmm. triggered you to think, no, I think that I have a strength here, that I'm good at this and I want to get better at it. What made you identify that as a strength? Well, I understood service excellence really deeply and that's applicable in any field. Now, clearly, the commercial space is where there's there's more money, and and you know, quite frankly, it was just going to be more opportunity to be able to earn a higher salary, still doing what I love doing and using a talent and strength that I've got. So it made sense to me to broaden my experience, and I never have ever left behind the non not for profit side of things either. So universities and student development, I still choose to spend about twenty percent of my time deliberately in that space, even though the returns aren't the same as in the commercials world that I the world. That I work, but I just love working with students. I just love the energy, you know, both undergrad and graduate students. And and when people, you know, bag Gen Zs and millennials, I mean, I've got a couple of children that are exactly them myself, but I don't understand why they bag them. It makes no sense to me. To me, the fundamental difference is, is they don't tolerate things that maybe my generation tolerated that aren't so good in a culture. And when an organization promises something and then doesn't deliver it, we we would probably wear it on the chin and say we have to cop that. Whereas they go and hold on, you promised this and you haven't delivered. I'm not hanging around for that. I applaud that. No, that's that's great. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it's because we have kids that age. <laughs> it makes us really soft with them, but I love them. And so in terms of the strengths that you bring to the work that you do, you know, my coaching is all about strengths. We, mm-hmm. we work on elevating the strengths in the same way that you said some of your client organizations are good already. They just want to be great. What was the strength that was built inside you as a DNA that has helped your career, Gary? 
Well, this is where I have to thank my family and I have to thank the fact that I'm number nine with a twin, so we're nine and ten, and a blue-collar family. I have four first cousins, and for males to go to university just isn't what happened in my broader family on both my mother and father's side of the families. As a result of going down a different path, uh, I can tell you the story if you like about how this came about. But I'd love at, it. Go ahead. Tell the story. When my twin brother and I were ten, our parents sat us both down, as they had done with our siblings, and asked us where we wanted to go to secondary school okay they're blue collar family but both my parents my mother got taken out of school at age 14 my father at age 15 they both actually liked school so they highly valued education because it was taken away from them due to economic reasons etc uh, and their, their, their stories and they sat us down they said where do you want to go to secondary school and i said i want to go to university and dad said well i'm talking about secondary school son and you're talking about university and what are you going to do at university anyway i said I don't know. And he said, well, why do you want to go to university? And I said, I just know I've got 10 thumbs. I don't really like swinging the hammer in the garage with you and the, my brothers. I, 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 I'm pretty good at school. I'm pretty smart at school. I think I should go to university. But to get there, I think I should go to the boys' secondary school, the local boys' secondary school. And okay. so dad goes, oh, okay. And he turns to my twin brother and he says, where do you want to go to school? And he goes, oh, I've heard they do too much homework at those, <laughs> those boys' schools. <laughs> so I want to go to secondary school with my where my brothers go and I want to be a tradesman like you. So dad said, okay, he points at me and says, all right, you can go to the local boys secondary school and you can do that homework. He points at my twin brother and says, you can go to the local technical school with your brothers. And then he pointed at himself and said, I'll go and get myself a second part-time job. So he had a full-time job, one part-time job. Now he was saying, I'll go get a second part-time job so I can pay for you to go to that local boys school. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. And I knew that. And so as a result of that, there was no way I was going to have poor grades. Yes. Yes. Oh, you have to live up to to those expectations and that hard work. I wanted you to to tell us the story, Gary, because I do have clients that come from blue collar uh, mm. families, and they are now executives, senior executives, and th there is something that they carry with them that that is a lot of pride, but also their sense of place in that executive presence that they haven't really received from growing up in a blue collar family. You know, and I. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, my background is very different from yours. You know, I'm third generation expat. So my my grandfather worked in Washington, D.C. My dad worked in the Silicon Valley. Here I am in Australia. So the amount of knowledge and vicarious learning that I got from observing them, you know, mm. uh, even though my, my mom didn't go to uni, she was also quite an intellectual. So it makes a huge difference in building up your executive presence and your ability to liaise at that senior exec levels, which you had to learn in a different way. And I had to develop for organizations that I worked for. As you know, I worked for Monash, mm. developing the master's students career readiness program. And then at the Institute of Chartered Accountants, bringing a more diversity to the accounting profession here in Australia. And it's very different, isn't it? Did you feel that as you were entering the corporate sector? Well, and yes, and this is where I guess my strength, this is the relationship back to my strength, okay? So as a result of that journey, when I finished, when I finally finished that degree, I, I, I swore I'm never going back to university. I'm so, so glad to be out of there, right? And, and my grades weren't particularly great. But as a result of that car accident that had happened along the way, I actually realized I needed to do some work on me and I started to read and I was not a great reader. And I'm such an advocate for reading now, like, and, and for, gosh, since probably, well, since 1988, I've been, I've, I started reading again. 
and and I haven't stopped and I chose to be a student of leadership whether I was studying it or not. So even though I thought I'm going to finish, one of the things that started to emerge from me was that I actually quite like, as a result of my reading, and I actually quite like the idea of trying to put it into practice, which is what I was doing in my early career once I got those jobs that I mentioned at the start, right? And then that led to going back to university in 1999 to do my first graduate degree. And I loved it. I, I loved what I was studying. And then when I got to do my master's degree, I loved it even more because we actually had 30 people in the organization. You might recall uh, the master's program that some of us you know, were doing at the, at the time at Monash. And we were able to negotiate with Monash University that the the content and all the assignments would be on the organization because the intent was we wanted to get theory and practice and put it together. So this mm-hmm. comes to my strength. With having 10 siblings who are strongly blue collar, I do have a sister that's a, a teacher qualified as well. Um, so fundamentally nine, two of us um, more white collar and the rest, I guess, were more, were more blue collar. To explain to them what I do along the journey, I've had to be able to find the way to find the communication skills and the language so they could actually understand what I do. And over time, I guess that blue-collar background and my studies has led to what I believe is my gift, is that I can speak with anybody. I can talk to C-suite people at the language they need to, to hear and understand. And I've literally been in minefields and outback Australia. I've been in train yards here in Melbourne, Victoria, and everything in between. And I seem to be able to find a way to communicate big concepts with people in a way that they can understand. That's my gift. That's yeah. my talent. It's such a gift. I, I had the word gift in my mind, as you were saying. It's such an important thing. And even though it may not be a strength to other people, it might be something that you need to work on regardless of what your strengths and DNA is because communicating at all levels is essential for career advancement, career progression or career sustainability. And that also means communicating with a younger audience as you get older and all of a sudden you see all of these youngsters coming in. I know my dad struggled with that. If you're listening, dad, <laughs> you know, you may remember. But it's really important to to have that. So well done. Now, you mentioned being um, a student of leadership. Now you are a consultant and a teacher you have if people are watching this episode on youtube behind you you have your brand new book on banners uh, disruption leadership matters you know a lot of people going through recruitment and selection process gary they are asked a very simple question halfway through their interviews which is tell me about your leadership style yeah and they struggle to answer it even if they have been leading for a decade even if they have large teams so Why is it that people struggle to answer that question? Because if you just Googled the word leadership, you will hit you will have over one billion hits on that one word. There are so many answers. And I think because there are so many answers, without doing some smart hard work that I'm going to advocate for in a moment, it's confusing. Well, what what's the answer? What's the right answer? Now the fact is with one billion responses, there's no one right answer. The most important answer, and this is where the smart hard work kicks in, Renata, is for people to actually work out, and I get people to do this all the time, what's the seven to 10 behaviours of what you think an effective leader is? Just write them down from your life's experience, whether you've whether it's they're the opposite of what you experienced because you had poor leadership or whether you actually got to experience the great leadership, what are the seven to 10 things? Now, once you do that, sometimes then when you do your, your reading and it might be 10 minutes per day, five five times a week, 
50 minutes a week of reading, watching YouTube videos, listening to audio books, podcasts, whatever it might be that comes into your 10 minutes of being a student of leadership. And think about that for a moment. doesn't sound like much. How much would have you had the opportunity to be exposed to over 12 months? Yes. Over 24 months, over 10 years. Like it's enormous how much you can be. And what happens is, is you can find, eventually what will happen is a, a style of leadership might come, you might come across, you go, gosh, that matches what I believe. So now I have a label that I can use. So for me, it's servant leadership. It matches mm-hmm. what I believe. Okay. Yeah. Which is also effectively authentic leadership, inclusive leadership. They're all very similar labels about the same principles that I tend to believe in about what makes an effective leader. So if you do that little bit of work, it actually makes that question a lot easier to answer. Yes. I think it's important when you identify a trending label like servant leadership, which has been trending for a while, by the way, Mm -hmm. that you are able to not only identify yourself, if you're listening, I'm talking to you, that um, you're not, not only able to identify yourself as being a servant leader, Either, but then argue it, right? Yes. You can't just say it. Now, I really demonstrate how and give examples in your answer for that. It's very important job interview question. So there lies the need to do the research. And there are two things that I find happen, Gary, when I'm talking to clients is when they are avid readers like you and I, but they do not make the connection and blend what they're reading with their career in them in themselves so they mm. they're detached from from the theory ideally what i like to ask my clients to do as part of their homework is to bring that together you know and i have things that sit behind my my coaching to, to help them do that but the other thing is that they don't really explain and give a good example of their leadership in action yes yes yeah and that's key you see if you in, in my i guess from my perspective Renata, I think we're on the same page here, is that you ha- if you haven't developed that level of clarity, it's really hard to ha- give an example. It's really hard to actually put it into practice. Now, you absolutely can reflect back on previous examples and go, I didn't realise that's what I was doing, but that's what I was doing, and now I understand it, now I can tell the story. As an example, when when um, I, I got that first job commercialising that fitness centre for Monash University, I had already become a senior coach at the age of 27 of a of a suburban men's football team. So I was coaching men, many of whom were much older than me. Again, because of my family situation, working with people older really wasn't that big a deal to me. But I was actually trying, I was doing servant leadership then, even though I never knew what it was. I didn't understand what it was. I was we were focused on vision and, and values. And as I was reading, I actually realized. What I was doing as a football coach, I wasn't doing in my job. I wasn't leading like that in my job. I was still command and control. I'm the know-it-all leader. And, and I had this epiphany where I went, why aren't I doing this at work? So the, 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 the skills I developed and were practicing and putting into practice in a, in a sporting context were 100% transferable into my career. And the, okay. moment I, yeah, and the moment I made that connection, my career just went like this. And it's never really, it's never really stopped. You know, Gary, we learn so much from sports and I, I often use sports analogies as well to explain things as you do because it's everywhere. 
And it's so easy to understand. I could use analogies from, let's say, a Shakespearean play, but I'm not sure if many people would get it. But with sports, like it or not, it's easy. And you know where you can also get so much knowledge of how to operate successfully in the world? Nature. There's so much we can learn from nature. Right. I don't know if you got my newsletter yesterday and I will put a link in the show notes below for those who are not yet subscribed. If you're not, you should. And the article was about magpies and how they working together as a group were removing the um, tags that scientists have put on them. And they they worked out a way to help each other remove those tags the magpies. And I was like, this is amazing. It shows that we are all animals and working as a group, as a team, we can collaborate and succeed in tasks much better if, you know, in their case, they thought maybe that's an alien thing that's, you know, a parasite or something. They didn't know it was a scientific experiment. (laughs) But I thought, There's so much that we can learn. And for me, the analogy that I was trying to make is group coaching. You know, like it's it's fantastic. People sometimes look down on it. And I'm like, no, it's actually very good. (laughs) You can learn not only from me, but you can learn from each other. So, yeah, nature and sports, everyone. I often like to recommend people watch documentaries about sports and nature. You know, there's so many great sports documentary there, especially for job seekers that are going through recruitment and selection process over and over again and falling short. Just watch the net watch the Netflix series about Formula One and you will mm. see a whole bunch of really, really great guys all mm. trying to get to the finish line and how hard it is. Oh yes. And it's 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 fascinating that that life has gifted me our middle child who's 17 in year 12 now as a performing artist. And and his name's Callum and, and to see what Callum does and to see through, I guess, I grew up with a sporting lens, but what he's doing as a performing artist with the shows that they put on and the way that they have to live on stage when something goes wrong, just like those magpies find a way to fix Improvise. it without noticing is just amazing. And it's been beautiful for me to, to become closer to seeing that that world through that lens I guess now and seeing the beauty of the skills equally valid in that space as well and so whether people that that might be in your audience they might be involved with a a church choir of whatever religious space or they they might be involved in a in a club that's it's about it's a club to do with lego and they're on the committee absolutely 100% transferable experiences and skills. And so when they share those sorts of stories, and I'm not sure if you've touched on this, but a lot of folk I find think that those stories are irrelevant for a job interview. My, my view is unless you've got, if you haven't got a better one and that's what you've got, then use it just at the end, explain how you would transfer that experience across into a workplace environment. Like, in other words, what's the core lesson and how would you transfer that across if you got this job? So if you if you hired me from what I just told you about that Lego committee story, this is how this might look. That's great. Um, I love that. I love that example. Thank you, Gary. That's a great tip. I wanted to shift gears now to talk about leadership and the turbulence, you know, and the disruption. You, you mentioned disruption. Throughout the COVID years, I have mm-hmm. been talking a lot about VUCA, so volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, and how important it is for every professional, not just the senior execs, to be familiar with that 
term and, and operating in that term, creating strategies and the importance of foresight, looking forward instead of looking backwards with forecasting, which we do quite well. But I am so keen to know from you because you've written a book you know, you are one of those amazing people that use the pandemic <laughs> in a very productive way and wrote not only any book, but a book that has been so well received. What have you learned about being a leader doing disruption? I think it's summarized in a single word, and that's called care. I think what leaders have recognized, and some of them are in the book that, that weren't as familiar with how important it was as it, as it quickly became for them, that they need to genuinely care. They need to genuinely care about whatever the organization's trying to achieve. So Raymond O'Flaherty, the CEO of the Metro Trains Melbourne, Metro Trains were smashed by the pandemic because people stopped using public transport and that's still a concern for a lot of people. And yet he had a workforce of 6,500 people that he serves that we're required to still go to work because we still have our health workers. We still had our police force, our, our ambulance uh, folk, et cetera, the hospital workers who needed to be able to get to and from work. But he had a workforce that needed to feel safe, as, as safe as possible in a risky job now because at that time, especially at the start of 2020, they, they didn't know what this virus really was. And so as much as Raymond was allowed to, according to the rules, he physically put himself out there to be with the staff where they were working at the very minimum saying, thank you for showing up. He cared enough to know that that was so important. I I, I just need to, to thank you for showing up. And the, the, the recognition that so many um, leaders had with the pivot that people did, and I know it feels like such a long time ago now, that, that week or two weeks when we all went from this world of going to work in a physical environment to we're working from home and millions and millions of people use their own resources to enable often in days or at most a week, maybe two weeks, to keep the work happening. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so a lot of the leaders I found in, in my book, uh, Christina Hermanson from FMC Australia, New Zealand, which is a chemical company that works with insecticides and agri that serves agricultural industry, which was really important for keeping the food production going, et cetera. And, and she recognised the importance work of, of, the, of the pivot that, that the team that um, she led had done. And on one level recognised, can I ever really repay that? Mm. You know, can I ever really repay that that pivot that people did? And, and you know, I've got to continue to care with uh, show care. So when in their instance they, they were based in Sydney for their Australian head office, so they didn't quite go through what we did here in Melbourne in, in late 2020, they were able to start to experiment, and this was a deliberate choice of words, experiment how we go back to the office. So they've actually been doing it for about a bit more than a year and a half of in and out of this experiment about what's going to work. And they agreed, well, okay, we'll have a Tuesday and a Wednesday when everyone will be in the office. And then there's one day a week extra where the teams need to be in the office and they can decide which day of the week that is. And let's experiment and see how that goes. My understanding is they've not found a better way. <laughs> and, and and to still be open to the possibility of change as we're now in this hybrid world. And you mentioned foresight, Renata. It's hard to imagine we're not in hybrid forever. Yes, yes. I was going to ask you that now. From what you've observed, talking to so many great leaders... 
how do you think people that are trying to change jobs and find the best organizations to work for? Because there are lots of people that have decided that 2022 is the year that they will change jobs, either mm -hmm. because they spent two years thinking about it, but didn't change because people don't usually change when there's too much uncertainty and that's normal. Mm -hmm. So there's a backlog of resignations that didn't happen for two years that are probably happening now, but also disappointment with mm -hmm. organizations that did not fare well with the disruption, right? So there's those two things combined across the world. Uh, we're seeing the great resignation happening and rever rever reverberations of that happening in Australia as well. What do you think the listeners who are looking for a job should be looking for when they are applying for? What are the signals of great leadership within an organization? Well, this is controversial, what I'm about to say. Oh, we like, we love controversy here, Gary. <laughs> well, I, I think the thing, the thing that the pandemic has really brought to the surface is this term human resources, human capital, human assets, okay? Now, I would argue strongly that the organisations that really haven't behaved particularly well from a leadership and culture perspective over the past two years, which is why people are choosing to leave uh, in many instances, so they're leaving a boss, they're leaving a culture, they're leaving a manager, they're leaving a culture, is because they've been treated as a resource. And that was actually what catalyzed my book. There was a couple of examples fairly close to home where it was very clear, despite all the nice superlatives and all the nice talk about how important they are and that that classic, people are our greatest asset. This is an asset okay. or resource. Uh, uh, yeah, a human, a computer's an asset. Uh, a house is an asset potentially. Like that's not what a human being is. Like we've used this language. People don't realize these concepts come from Taylorism, Frederick Winslow Taylor and the production line of Henry Ford over 110 years ago. And yes, there's a lot to be said for the 20th century and the growth that was created from the Industrial Revolution that really exploded in the 20th century. But there's a lot to be said that's not great from the 20th century that we we now realise that the way we've treated our planet and our resources maybe isn't so good. And I would argue treating a human beings as a 20th century concept in the 20th first century has been proven over the past two years not to be any good. Mm -hmm. so Here's where it's controversial, Renata. If you're going for a job and the person that's going to interview you or recruit you has human resources in their title, what's that telling you? What's that telling you? They still haven't changed. They think you're a resource. Why would you do that to yourself? And until there is no one to recruit because people aren't going to those companies or these leaders have no one to lead, I'm afraid many of them aren't going to change. Mm -hmm. They're going to keep working on this old industrial revolution, uh, industrial age thinking that you're a resource. And ultimately that means you're a number. And I would suspect many folk, if they're experienced on this call, will have experienced what it feels like to be treated by it like a number by your organisation. Yeah, right? that's it's not so great, true. Right? It's not great. And, and so that's the first one is ask the question, if they're still recalling people human resources, is that where I want to go? And then secondly, do your homework. Use tools like LinkedIn to reach out to people that are already working in these organisations and ask the question, what's it really like to work there on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you have the autonomy you would expect to have in the role that you've got with your experience. Tell, can you tell me about that? Are you getting to continue to learn and develop skills that are useful for you and your future? And, and do you feel that the work you're doing is contributing to a greater good of some degree? Like their Daniel Pink's Venn diagram of, of purpose, mastery, and autonomy. And mm -hmm. we know 
that folk that are that are working in the intersection of that Venn diagram are highly engaged people who are going home quite happy. So they're terrific questions for people to be asking as part of their research, Renata. That's wonderful. Thank you, Gary. That leads me to maybe sort of the tail end of our conversation. I'd like you to tell me, by researching so many leaders for the past couple of years, what will organizations of the future look like? I mean, you work with organizations, you're seeing them develop over the course of your career. So this is not just about the pandemic, right? It's about you seeing the progress and you seeing how organizations evolve. Now we've had this massive disruption. We've probably should learn how to live with further disruption because this is not the last one that we will see maybe even in this decade. So what would a great organization of the future look like for my listeners? Well, I think, and this probably isn't going to be a surprise to most folk, but the diversity and inclusion aspect is that organizations have have come to realize or that the, the, the good or the ones moving towards great have recognized that we need to look more like the people that we're ultimately serving. So if we've got an executive team that looks a particular way and it's very similar, probably isn't matching the people that we're serving ultimately. Now, whether that means we, we need people from different cultural backgrounds or whether we need that people from different genders or people from non-specific genders, whatever it might be, I think that that's been the step change. So for me, disruption means we've moved from organic change or incremental change to actually step change. So diversity and inclusion has been around for a long time, but I think the past two years have really awakened many leaders, even the great ones, to recognising there's we need to get busy on this work. Now, that's going to create a lot of opportunities for a lot of folk on the call and potentially frighten some others. Uh, folks that look like me potentially. <laughs> but equally, people like me are still part of diversity and inclusion. Uh, so just yesterday, I, I was speaking with a group of consultants that are looking at having me potentially join them as an executive partner. And, you know, what they said to me was, we actually don't have any males your age or your experience in our organization. We're predominantly female. We've got a lot of diversity there, but we actually need some diversity. So, you know, that that was, I guess, a, 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 it, was, it was refreshing, but I, I just want to help people that look maybe like me not to be fearful and, and get too focused on, okay, no one wants me. I don't believe that's yeah. true. Okay. That's diversity coming full circle, isn't it, Gary? <laughs> well, it does, and it needs to. Absolutely. It, it is, isn't it? You know, and look, you know, I have been privileged enough through my career that I would have never really thought too much about it. Um, my wife, Michelle, is of Sri Lankan background. We don't think it's really impacted her background in any negative way here in Australia, and particularly in Melbourne. We're such a multicultural city, but maybe it has that we're not quite as, as fully aware. But, but I think that's the key going forward is that, that importance of diversity because it brings, we know through research, right, that it brings the diversity of thinking and it brings questions that we otherwise wouldn't ask. And if we're going to continue to learn our way forward, so that's a phrase I believe the organisations have now clearer than ever about Renata is that they've got to learn their way forward. Innovation is a big part of that. So they've got to innovate with their products, their services, their processes. And right now we're in this massive innovation period of how we get to work in this hybrid environment. Gary, are there any issues or topics or ideas that you really wanted to share with the listeners today and we didn't have a chance to, to talk about that this is your time? 
to come up with ideas if you want to, or just let us know how people can connect with you as well. That's also important. Sure. So there's a couple of things there is I want to be really clear that, and it's I cover this in my book in a small section, that while we've got the great resignation happening, which one of my heroes, Michelle Hunt, calls the great soul searching and, and another hero, Gary Ridge, calls the great escape. <laughs> there's those three terms being being used. And it can feel like it's all a one-way street about engagement, that it's all the organization's responsibility. I believe there is a responsibility and yes, the leadership and yes, the culture has a massive impact, but we equally have a responsibility for being engaged in the work that we do. To, to help us be engaged, what I have seen through my career and my work, Renata, is the happiest people are the ones working at the intersection of their talents and their passion. Now, once you know what those two things are, I believe that intersection is actually quite large. And once you've got that clarity, so for some of your listeners, maybe they need to do some work to help work out, well, what are my talents? What are my passions? Because it can be plural. And then that can help shape where we are. Now, sometimes a talent might be something like people say to you, you're so funny. And and 20 people say that to you, that you're funny. Maybe you've got a talent for that. Maybe working on breakfast radio is a possibility. Now, you never thought of breakfast radio. Generally speaking, people on breakfast radio are either super serious because of the channel they're on or they're trying to be funny, <laughs> right? And you don't have to be a comedian, though, but it might you might have a talent for it. That make, this makes sense? Right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, once you become aware of your passions, that can then help you look for the organisations that have roles that fit at that intersection. So I guess that's that's a key message that I'd love to share. Oh, thanks, Gary. And, and you know, that that's part of what we talk about all the time here on this podcast. So the listeners that have been following us will know that this is we're banging on a note that we really like to bang on. But how can people get in touch with you? What's the best way? If they want to buy your book, we will have a link in the show notes for sure. But yes. if they want to work with you, how can they reach you? So for the book, it's disruptionleadershipmatters.com or through any good online bookstore. It was Amazon Kindle where we went to number one in a couple of categories uh, in January. Orgsthatmatter.com. So my company, I can see the, na- the, the name, Organizations That Matter, but it's sh- a bit shorter for the uh, web address. Address. It's orgsthatmatter.com. Uh, they're the easiest ways to get in contact me or, in fact, through LinkedIn. Gary Ryan one is my tag at the end of the LinkedIn uh, little URL at the start. So Gary Ryan one for LinkedIn. I'd be more than happy to connect with people. I'm, I'm not sure why LinkedIn shifted things to sort of pushing people to follow. I'm happy to connect with people. Okay. Now, we will have all the links below in the episode show notes, everyone. So if you're interested to know more about Gary and his book, don't forget to check the links. Gary, thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic seeing you again. And we should catch up for a coffee soon. Uh, It sounds like we're going to do that 100% for sure, Renata. I really appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you. If you want to connect with Gary or buy his books, there will be links for you to follow in the episode show notes. If you want to connect with me and understand more about the work that I do, there are also links in the episode show notes. Or you can try spelling my name www.renatabernardi that's R-E-N-A-T-A B-E-R-N-A-R-D-E dot com and you will find my services, my free resources and a lot more information for job seekers and career enthusiasts. Ciao for now and I'll see you next time. Music